Let's pray together just for a moment. The Bible says that by one offering once for all, he has sanctified forever those who are his. I hope you're one of his this morning, one of God's, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, you could not have heard the gospel more clearly presented than in these moments, as we understand that God has provided a Redeemer, a sacrifice to die in our place, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he died for you and for all of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that sacrifice that you've made on our behalf. And those of us who have come to the cross and bowed the knee and received you, rejoice this morning and we glorify you. And we say indeed, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Amen. We open our Bibles together this morning to the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel. As we think about the theme, how to avoid the lion's den. I suppose that you parents would like to have a dollar every time that you've heard, for every time that you've heard the phrase, that's not fair. We heard it in our home just last night, again. Well, the fact is that not everything in life is fair, is it? Because the world is under the curse of sin. Sometimes right is declared to be uh, wrong, rather, is declared to be right. And truth is eclipsed by a lie. And the godly person is unjustly accused and condemned. If this happens to you, just remember that it happened to the Lord Jesus, and he can sympathize fully with you. The New Testament says, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. And so Peter, in his first epistle, goes on to say, This finds favor with God, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. We see that principle borne out in the illustration of Daniel in the sixth chapter of the book that bears his name. We have learned in studying in Daniel that it's possible to go too far in defiance and blasphemy against God. And that is what Belshazzar did. He crossed the line of God's patience and grace. He was slain in the city of Babylon. And the city and the empire fell to the Medes and the Persians as God had predicted, indeed appointed, that it should. And so Cyrus, the king of the Persians, reigned. He appointed in Babylon one whose name was Darius to reign as his viceroy. We see in the last verse of chapter 5, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age of 62. The word Darius literally means royal one in the Persian language. It's probably best understood as a title, something like the title Caesar, which then came to be applied to the person who was in the office. The individual that was named Darius here is likely to have been 
one named Guburu, who was a Median general who served under Cyrus. Reigning during the transitional period, after the fall of Babylon, until the Medes and the Persians could fully establish their kingdom, this Darius sought to bring the conquered territories into full submission to Cyrus. Sixty-two years of age he was when he received the kingdom, it says. And in chapter 9 and verse 1 it says, He was made ruler, implying that there was one superior to him who gave him his authority. And that one who was his superior was Cyrus. Now it says in chapter 6 and verse 1, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. And so we understand how he organized this transitional time in the kingdom of Babylon. 120 men were appointed as satraps. We do not know exactly the size of their area of responsibility, but 120 of them fanned out to cover the empire, and they answered to three men who then were responsible directly to Darius. One of the three men directly responsible to Darius was Daniel, who, as we saw in the last chapter, just at the close of the reign of Belshazzar, was appointed the third in power in that empire. And so Daniel, this man of God who is now in his 80s, has risen to power in two different Gentile uh, empires. This one being the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Now we're going to see how Daniel was uh, eventually placed in a position of jeopardy. And his life was endangered as he was thrown into a den of lions. We want to first this morning look at the way to the lion's den. That is traced for us in the divisions of the narrative. We notice Daniel's character, that he was observed as a man with an excellent attitude. In verse 3 it says, This Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, an excellent spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And so very quickly Daniel rose among the other the three commissioners so that he was going to be responsible directly to the king himself. And then the other two commissioners, or perhaps another appointed in his place, would be responsible to Daniel. He was a man of flawless work. It says that the commissioners and satraps who worked under him began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. What a tremendous example Daniel sets for all civil servants. For anyone who is in a position of power in the government to allow no taint of corruption or negligence to be found in his work. Daniel was a flawless man in his work for Darius. But not only that, he was a devoted worshiper. We know that about his character from what is said in verse 5. 
says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So here is a man with an excellent attitude, a flawless work record, and a man who is devoted to God above everything else in his character. And then we see the conspiracy against Daniel. It begins in these verses we've read and now begins to be fleshed out in verses 6 through 9. These uh, commissioners and satraps got together without Daniel. And they made an agreement and came to the king and they said, King Darius live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom... Oh, wait a minute. Not all of the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors consulted together. Not all of them. All of them except one man, Daniel. Obviously, Daniel had not been in their, their time of uh, conspiracy and agreement because they were after him. But they pretended as though everyone, including Daniel, had been involved in this agreement. It says, We've consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. That was, of course, a characteristic of the law of the Medes and Persians. Once established, nothing could change it. In that sense, the laws of the, the kings of the, the uh, Medes and Persians had less authority than Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, because Nebuchadnezzar could establish a decree and then change it at his whim. But not so among the Medes and the Persians. Once a king spoke, that was it. Nothing, not even the king himself, could change that decree. And so no one was to pray or to seek any other god except King Darius for the next month. The kings of that day were not uh, <clears throat> uncommonly called deity. Uh, often they would declare themselves or others would declare them to be gods. And in this way they were able to consolidate their power in their kingdom. And Darius obviously found this very appealing, not only for his own ego, but also because he was trying to consolidate the Babylonian Empire as quickly as possible so that Cyrus would be well pleased with him. Well, it says that the king signed the document, uh, the injunction, and then in verse 10, we come to the courage of Daniel. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. We notice that prayer was a matter of pattern, of continuity in the life of Daniel. Indeed, I think we can say that the one thing that saved Daniel from the influence of the pagan cultures around him for these some 70 years or more that he has been uh, in Babylon and now in Medo-Persia was the fact that he was a praying man. Prayer will spare us from falling under the influence of a pagan culture. And if we do not pray... We are then pray for the pagan culture around us. Because he was a man of prayer, Daniel had not 
compromised his convictions. Now at this point, it's possible that Daniel might have rationalized some compromise. He might have said, look, there is this decree, and I think it would be all right in this case to at least close the shutters on these windows so that no one can observe me. Or on the other hand, he might have said, I think I will just uh, cease praying for a month. I mean, God will surely understand. For all of these decades, I have been praying faithfully three times a day. And now if I just skip it for a month, surely God would be patient with me. Or he might have said, look, they know that I'm going to be praying there. What I'm going to do is find a place where I can close myself off in secret and I will pray there. Or on the other hand, he might have said, they expect me to pray during the daytime. I'm going to get them. I'll pray at night. And I'll pray three times during the night and no one will know that I'm praying. But Daniel refused to do that. Daniel did not compromise. He was courageous. He refused any temptation in that direction and determined to practice his devotion to the Lord faithfully. So he made a choice to be loyal to the Lord rather than to obey a godless system of government that forbade his praying. He practiced that New Testament principle that we see that we are to obey God rather than man. Someone has said, I wonder what would happen if we were as eager for the approval of God as we are for the applause of men. Daniel wanted the approval and the blessing of God upon his life. And therefore he refused to compromise his praying. Now as Daniel was meditating and praying, we know what Daniel was meditating about. He was meditating about the fact that 70 years were now accomplished for the captivity of the people of God. In the ninth chapter, in the second verse, we have this record. It says, in the first year of his reign, that is the reign of Darius, the very time we're talking about, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books, the scrolls, the writings of the Old Testament, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel tells us exactly what was on his mind during these days. He realized that Jeremiah had spoken the exact number of years that the people of God would be in captivity. And the thing that was exciting him and stimulating him in his prayer life was that the time was now up. And I believe that because he was a man who read the books, he was also a man who was familiar with the writings of Isaiah the prophet. 150 years before this time, Isaiah was given the name of the man who would release the Jews from their captivity. And he names him in the 45th chapter of his book, calling him Cyrus. Calling him indeed Cyrus, my servant. Because God was going to raise up this man who was yet to be born when Isaiah spoke the words, to be his servant to release the people of Israel from bondage in Babylon. And Daniel realizes that now Cyrus is reigning. 
And the man that God had prophesied of 150 years before was there before him. This was no time for compromise. Daniel determined to be faithful. We see the charge that is brought against Daniel beginning in verse 11. The men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and supplication before God. We can know what Daniel was praying. Oh God, release your people. Redeem them from their captivity in Babylon. God, the time is up. God, Cyrus is reigning. Remember your promise. Well, they approached and spoke before the king about the injunction and said, "Uh, Did you sign this petition, king? And uh, the king said, Yes, that's true, I did. And they answered and spoke and said, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. And so there is the charge against Daniel. It's not really a fair charge. Because Daniel did pay attention to the king. He was a man who was flawless in his work. They had misrepresented him before to the king, saying that Daniel was in on this agreement when he had not been. And now they come unfairly and accuse Daniel of praying. Notice the king's response. He gave orders. Daniel was brought in. And cast into the lion's den. Believe me, this grieved Darius. The verses uh, intervening there show that. He did everything in his power to keep Daniel from having to go through this. He tried to find a way to get around his own decree, but he could find none. And so the command was given that Daniel should be cast into the den of lions. A stone was brought after Daniel was placed in the, the den. It was placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own ring and the signet rings of his nobles. That was according to the law. Nothing was to break that seal. Daniel was to pay the price. And then it says in verse 18, The king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no entertainment was brought before him. And his sleep fled from before him. Darius did not want to see this trusted advisor slain, but he had no choice. And while Daniel was there in that lion's den, he walked his floor. He turned in his bed. He could not sleep. He waited until the dawn. And then when the dawn came, the king was the first one out of bed and went out to the lion's den. When he had come near to it, he cried out and he said, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? He must have waited then for that sound. Is Daniel going to respond? And it wasn't long before Daniel responded and said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. The king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And then the king commanded that those 
men who were involved in the plot against Daniel should themselves, along with their wives and their children, be cast into the lion's den. And Daniel records for us that their bodies did not even touch the bottom of the den before all of their bones were crushed and they were killed. Darius then made a decree. He says, May your peace abound, as he writes to everybody in the land. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Seems as though Daniel remained in position for several years until he retired. And perhaps about four years after this episode, <clears throat> Daniel began to collect the writings that are in the book bearing his name. And he records for us exactly what happened to him. And so as we look at this account, what is the way to the lion's den? The answer to that is very simple. The way to the lion's den, that is, the place of persecution, the point of suffering, the way to the lion's den is the way of uncompromising faithfulness to the Lord. It is Darius himself who twice said regarding Daniel, you constantly serve the Lord. That was his reputation before the king a man of faithfulness, and Daniel would not compromise that. That is the way to the lion's den, but the fact is that most of us want a different message this morning. Most of us want a message that says, how do I avoid the lion's den? How can I avoid suffering? How can I keep away from persecution? And so I want to address that subject in the remainder of my time this morning. How do we avoid the lion's den? I have four suggestions for every one of us who is concerned about that. For every one of us who does not want to come to that point of risking our lives. For those of us who want nothing to do with suffering for God or being persecuted for our faith. Here's how you do it. Four suggestions. Number one, keep a low profile in spiritual matters. That's how you do it. Just melt into the mediocre mass. Don't stand out. Don't be vocal or visible for Jesus Christ. Go along with the current of things. Agree with the majority in the world around you. Hide your light under the bushel. Be rational, not radical in your faith and in your religious commitment. Say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. Shoot for the lowest common denominator. Daniel, after all, should have practiced his faith in private, should he not? How dare he leave his window open so everyone else could see him? He should realize that faith is a personal matter and not to be paraded in public. 
rather than living a spiritually integrated life as he did. He should have compartmentalized his life, separating his secular political duty from his religious experience. We have a marvelous example of what I'm talking about in those people today who say, my convictions are against abortion, but I don't want to force that on anybody else. I wouldn't bring that into the public arena, though that's the way I feel about it privately. That's the kind of person who gives us a marvelous example in how to avoid the lion's den. Keep a low profile in spiritual matters. Secondly, I would suggest compromise convictions to avoid detection. Daniel should have tried to fit in with the pagan culture. He should have at least for 30 days set aside his convictions. When confronted with the possibility of public confrontation for your faith, I want to encourage you to immediately back off if you want to avoid the lion's den. Do nothing necessary to expose yourself. Do anything that will make you acceptable to the pagan culture around you. Compromise your convictions to avoid detection. And you can avoid the lion's den. A third suggestion. Correct any reports that may emerge about your faith. Daniel should have done this. When the report came... To the king, he should have immediately gone to Darius and exposed the whole plot. He should have said, I had nothing to do with this. And you can't throw me into the den of lions. He should have corrected the reports from those men. That's what we ought to do to avoid the lion's den. We should prove ourselves as one of the gang. We should use the same kind of language that they use. We should do the same kinds of things that they do. We should send out a press release, a bulletin, to communicate any misunderstanding that has occurred. That we're not the Christian that we're purported to be. We can avoid the lion's den. A fourth suggestion to do that is to employ any desperate method to reverse the threat of suffering. I mean recant. I mean, throw overboard your profession. I mean, disassociate yourself from your heritage. Pass amendments on your convictions. Change them. Just like Peter did at the fire when he was accused of having been with this person on trial. And he denied it and said, I don't know who he is. And when again he was accused, he cursed and he swore. And he said, I don't know the man. That's how to avoid the lion's den. Do not follow the example of one Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, and who was placed at a stake to be burned to death in 155 A.D., and who had one final chance to avoid the flames. If only he would recant. If only now he would use this desperate method to avoid the threat of suffering. When asked to recant, he said, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he's done me no harm. 
Why should I forsake him now? And with those words, he looked upon the flames that were lit, and praises were on his lips as he died for Jesus Christ. You see, you can avoid the lion's den if you choose to. As a matter of fact, it's not hard to do that. It's very easy to do that. But just remember that in doing so, there are some things you forfeit as well. Before you make the decision to take this route, just remember that in taking it, number one, you lose your personal honor. The apostle wrote to the Philippians and he said to them, On behalf of Christ, it is given to you as an act of God's grace to suffer for him. In other words, it is the highest honor that a Christian can have to bear the name Christian and to suffer for it. Not for wrong he's done, but for the sake of that name, because of his faith. Not only do you lose your personal honor by avoiding the lion's den, but I would just remind you that you also lose your future reward. For the New Testament writer says that if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. Suffering precedes glory. If we avoid the suffering, we lose the glory. But you can avoid the lion's den. You can do that. But if you do, you're not worthy of the Christ that you claim. Would you rather today, determined by the grace of God to be faithful and to accept the lion's den, even if it means everything lost for his sake, your job, your material goods, your security, your future with the corporation, the fulfillment of your dreams, your reputation, your acceptance by your peers, even life itself. It is when we suffer unjustly or because of righteousness that God is greatly glorified. Peter, who after that terrible denial of his Lord, later gave his life for Christ, wrote these words. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. The people of God in every age have been called upon to suffer if they would be faithful. Those who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, says the Apostle. We have looked in the book of Daniel at the prophecy concerning Antiochus Epiphanes, and we will see him again in a couple of weeks. 
in another prophecy. When Antiochus took the city of Jerusalem in the second century, Antiochus, or the third century, Antiochus sought to defile and to destroy the Jewish religion and the Jewish temple. The book of 2 Maccabees records a time when Antiochus demanded of a family that they eat pork and thus deny their God. And of course, the law of their God forbid them to eat pork. A mother and seven sons were gathered, and they all refused. Antiochus took the eldest of the sons, pulled out his hair, pulled all the skin off of his head, cut off his hands, cut off his feet, and then put him in a frying pan and fried him before the mother and the six brothers, and then turned the sixth of the sons, the second eldest of the sons, and said, Now, will you eat some pork? And faithful to his God, as was his brother, he ex experienced the same death before the eyes of his remaining brothers and his mother, his mother exhorting her son to suffer death for the sake of God. And the story goes on until every son was ultimately killed before the eyes of the mother, and she herself then was slain. You can avoid the fire. You can avoid the lion's den. But to avoid it means loss of one's personal honor and loss of future reward. So how much better to understand how to walk the way to the lion's den and determine in our hearts to be men and women who will be uncompromising in our obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I would hope that that reflects your attitude, your heart's desire, your determination to be faithful faithful, obedient, continuously so. Would you tell the Lord if that is true? Lord Jesus, hear the words of our hearts. as we seek to follow the example of Daniel and go to our own lion's den, that place of suffering, of risk, of persecution perhaps. But let us be a faithful people and be worthy of the name Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. And when he went on breathing, he laughed and scorned God and said, See, there is no God. But there came a moment when God's time was up for this man. And like all who preceded him, judgment came. 
and he was taken in death, and there was nothing that could deliver him from the hand of God. When God's moment of judgment arrives, nothing can provide escape. It was true with Belshazzar that night when he got the message by the handwriting on the wall. A few days ago, when I was in the home of some friends, I picked up an issue of Life magazine with pictures from the last 50 years in the magazine. One of the pictures was a picture taken covertly in the mausoleum in Moscow of Lenin and Stalin. And it showed them there in uh, their death pose, their bodies being carefully preserved by the communists. And it struck me again what a truth this is. That when God's moment of judgment arrives, there is nothing that can provide escape. Lenin and Stalin both denied that there was a God. They lived for the here and now materialistic world and sought to enforce their dictatorship over the masses, and they did. A dictatorship which is now beginning to crumble, as we know. A system that is passing away because it's so irrelevant. But they were very powerful men who defied God. But when the moment of judgment came, there was nothing that could deliver them from the hand of God. That's not only true of atheists and of communists. It's true of wealthy capitalists, too. Was it just two weeks ago or three weeks ago that Malcolm Forbes, one of the richest men in the whole world, who threw a luxurious, extravagant party for his 70th birthday last year and flew people in from all over the world on Concorde jets that they might celebrate with him, the rich and the famous and the wealthy. But when God's moment came for him to die, he died, and there was none who could deliver. We dare not take for granted God's compassion and God's patience so that we might live as we would choose. But rather we must heed his gracious call to repentance and live in such a way as would please him. For someone here today, that may mean a moment of salvation for you, an opportunity yet today to trust Jesus Christ. It may be that you have defied God openly, or it may be that outwardly you have been a very religious person, but there has not been that submission to God that is genuine faith. My friend, if you persist in either either overt or covert rebellion against God, judgment will come inevitably. The handwriting is already on the wall. Someone has written a poem that says, At the feast of Belshazzar and a thousand of his lords, while they drank from golden vessels, as the book of truth records, in the night as they reveled in the royal palace hall, they were seized with consternation, at the hand upon the wall. See the brave captive Daniel as he stood before the throng and rebuking the haughty monarch for his mighty deeds of wrong. As he read out the writing, "'Twas the doom of one and all, for the kingdom was now finished," said the hand upon the wall. So our deeds are recorded. 
there's a hand that's writing now. Sinner, give your heart to Jesus, to his royal mandate bow. For the day is approaching, it must come to one and all, when a sinner's condemnation will be written on the wall. When God's moment of judgment arrives, it's too late. And there's nothing that can deliver one at that moment. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. But I don't want to close before I come to another important application that we see in this text today. It is possible, it is possible to be a Daniel. By that I mean a person of integrity and a person of purity. In the midst of a pagan, anti-God culture. That does not happen automatically. Daniel was taken as a young teenager into this culture. It is obvious that his parents had done quite a job nurturing him in the law of the Lord and the knowledge of the true God. Because that nurturing had been so effective when he was taken away from them, from their home, from his homeland, from his culture, and put into the midst of a pagan culture, he was able to stand and did that very first year, you recall, when he purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's food. It is possible to be a Daniel in the United States of America in 1990. Whether one is a teenager or one is an old, older person, a senior, it is possible to be a Daniel, a person of purity, a person of integrity. What obligation there is to those of us who are parents to so nurture our children that as they are raised up, they will become Daniels. But if we're going to be a Daniel, it also requires our own personal spiritual development. It means taking courage to walk the unpopular path if necessary, to be the one who will stand alone. It means having commitment to lay everything on the line, to consecrate one's whole life to the Lord alone, and to refuse the spoils of a culture that is falling. The purple robes, the gold necklaces, and the positions of power offered by our culture today are nothing. For as surely as Babylon was under the judgment of God, so is this culture we live in. And it is passing away. And will one day, and one day soon, I think, be no more as we know it. Then how wise to be a Daniel. As the writer of the children's song said, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. I call upon all of us today who have knowledge of the true God to purpose 
in our hearts to be men and women who are like Daniels in the midst of our culture. Let's bow together in prayer. With our heads bowed, I wonder just how the Spirit of God would have you to respond. If you're a child of His, I would hope that you would in your heart right now purpose before God and say, I want to be like a Daniel. In the midst of a culture that is likewise pagan, as was his, that is likewise under the judgment of God because of its debauchery, its immorality, its murder, and its wickedness. In the midst of all of this, I purpose by the grace of God to be a Daniel, a man, a woman of God, who would even stand alone to be faithful. I would shun what the world offers. I would turn away from the spoils of the culture which entrap. And be God's man and God's woman where he's placed me. Oh, I would hope there would be hundreds of us today would respond that way. It may be there's someone here who is facing the handwriting on the wall. Your time is about up. Your days have been numbered. You have been weighed in the balances and you're wanting, you're lacking. And yet there is an opportunity because of God's grace, His love, for you to repent and to trust Jesus Christ to live your life for Him. Will you do that? Will you tell Him that today? Will you give yourself to Him without reservation in faith and in love?